Hello everyone, it's Helena here in Truro, here to talk about more great works of art. In this podcast, I'll be discussing a portrait which I regard to be one of the greatest of all time. No, it's not Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. It's a portrait which was so influential that its presentation of the sitter, seated three-quarter length at an oblique angle, became widely adopted as the template for portraits of state rulers in general and church leaders in particular. It is the portrait of Pope Julius II by the great high Renaissance artist Raphael. It dates to 1511. Its medium is oil on poplar. It measures 108 by 81 centimetres. It was acquired by the National Gallery in 1824 as part of the foundation collection previously owned by the banker John Julius Angerstein, and it was the first of some 12 paintings by Raphael owned by the National Gallery to enter the collection. To my mind, it is the perfect portrait. It has all the right ingredients in just the right proportion. Raphael has captured an extremely good likeness of the Pope. He's given us an insight into his personality, his character, his tastes and accomplishments. He's exquisitely rendered for us the different textures and materials of the Pope's clothing. And he's modelled so brilliantly the body of the Pope that we can make up beneath the layer of skin and even the clothing, the articulation and structure of the bones, the veins and muscles. The composition and arrangement of the painting is beautiful from the positioning of the Pope's head between the finials of the chair to the centering of his handkerchiefed hand. And he's supported by this wonderful colour harmony of the green, the red and the white, which enhances the aesthetic appeal of the painting without in any way distracting from what should be the focus of our attention, the Pope himself. I never tire of spending time with this painting, reflecting on the character of the Pope, wondering what he's really thinking, as we'll never know for sure, and immersing myself in the overall beauty of the work, admiring the way in which the artist almost effortlessly draws together all the elements of his craft to produce and present us with this superb portrait. So I recommend, if you've not already done so, that you download from the National Gallery's website an image of the painting so we can explore it together and discover what makes it this great masterpiece. When I saw the painting for the very first time, I was struck by two distinct features. One is its honesty. Pope Julius II was 68 years old when he commissioned the work from Raphael, a ripe old age in those days, when the average life expectancy was between 30 and 40. He died in February 1513, less than two years after the painting had been completed. And in the last years of his life, he was plagued by ill health. Indeed, around the time that this portrait was commissioned, he fell gravely ill, and his condition was so serious that he was administered the last rites. So in 1511, the Pope was not only elderly, he was seriously ill, and Raphael does not hide that fact from us. There's no airbrushing, no concessions to illness nor age. The Pope's shoulders and back are hunched, 
He's somewhat slumped in the chair, tilted to one side, reflecting his fragile state. His eyes betray a mood of melancholy, deep sunk into the sockets, and there are dark shadows beneath them, suggesting lack of sleep due to ill health and possibly a troubled mind. His facial skin is sagging, forming bags which are most notable around the cheekbones and upper lip, and there are deep furrowed lines, particularly from the bottom of his nostrils to the corners of his mouth. His grisly grey eyebrows make an interesting contrast to the smooth, shiny forehead, and they perfectly complement his rather splendid grey-white beard. It appears to have been recently brushed, given its fluffy appearance, but it's also somewhat unevenly trimmed, suggesting that the Pope has somewhat neglected his personal appearance in recent times, due, no doubt, to there being more pressing matters on his mind. And it's clear that he hasn't shaven in a while, given the number of facial hairs above the upper lip. His head is topped by a velvet red cap, trimmed with ermine, and judging by its compact size, one would guess it doesn't conceal much hair beneath it. He wears a pensive, sorrowful expression. He's lost in his own thoughts, oblivious of our presence, and it may be that due to his recent bout of illness, he's been forced to contemplate his frailty and mortality. So a very frank, a very honest portrait of the Pope. And we know this is the case because we have eyewitnesses to testify to this. According to Vasari, who wrote Lives of the Great Artists and included in his biography a chapter on Raphael, when the portrait was put on display in the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo in September 1513, seven months after the Pope's death, people flocked to see it. And they were astonished and frightened by the experience because the portrait bore such a striking resemblance to the Pope and was so full of life, so animated, that they were convinced they were in the living presence of the man himself. So a portrait striking, not just for its realism, but its brutal honesty. And the second distinctive feature of the portrait is its informality. Given what we know about the Pope's personality and character, and more about that later on, you would assume that he would have expected Raphael to project a powerful image of himself as leader of the Roman Catholic Church, one that was impressive, formidable, designed to command our admiration and respect. And yet what Raphael presents us with is a somewhat informal and intimate portrait of the Pope. For a start, although he's wearing papal uniform, it's not the full papal regalia. There's no triple crown, no crozier or staff, no beautifully embroidered mantle or cope. The Pope isn't dressed to impress. Rather, he's wearing his informal uniform, which is known as the choir dress, which he would wear when attending functions or services, but not performing mass. So there is the beautifully starched, white, crinkly undergarment, the smock, which is known as the cassock, on top of this, he wears the red-brushed velvet cape, known as the mazetta, which is lined with ermine. And then on his head, he wears a cap, known as the moretta, which is also trimmed with ermine. In his right hand, he holds a white cloth, known as a mappa, which is a symbol of papal authority. And the idea, derived from representations in classical antiquity, 
of Roman emperors holding such cloths as a sign of their status. And on both hands, the Pope is wearing rings set with beautiful jewels, also symbols of papal authority. The Pope is not seated on a throne, but a high-backed chair, which is nonetheless particularly ornate, with the gold-polished finials in the form of acorns, finished off with splendid gilt tassels. And it's been suggested that with the elaborate decoration of the chair and the use of the colour red and ermine lining in the Pope's clothing, we're given an impression of a man of royal status, albeit in a rather subtle, understated way, with the emphasis being very much on informality and intimacy rather than pomp and ceremony. But even more striking than the Pope's less formal dress is the presentation of the man. If Raphael had intended to project an image of the Pope's authority and command, he would normally have adopted one of two positions. Either he would have presented the side profile of the Pope, like the head of a Roman emperor on a coin, and this was regarded for many years in academic circles as the noblest form of portraiture. Or he could have shown the Pope full frontal, somewhat elevated, so the viewer would be forced to stand in front of the portrait and look up at the Pope, thereby being made well aware of their inferior status. And the prospect of having to look the Pope in the eye would be quite unnerving. Given the Pope's reputation for his ruthlessness, his cruelty, his lack of humour, and uncontrollably bad temper. But Raphael adopts neither of these powerful positions. Rather, he shows the Pope seated, three-quarter length, at an oblique angle. So we, the viewer, are invited to walk up to the Pope, stand by his side, and then we realise we're towering over him. That doesn't feel right. So instinctively, we look round for a chair, pull one up, and sit by his side. So we automatically adopt a position of intimacy. And then if we're courageous enough, we ask him the all-important question. How are you? No, really, how are you? And then the Pope may be encouraged to open up, tell us what's on his mind, be willing to admit that he's in very poor health and is more aware than ever of his mortality and frailty. And he's beginning to feel more than ever the pressures of the job. I mean, he's always had enemies, most notably the French king. But at this time, he's feeling their power and influence more than ever and is all too well aware how his position and authority as Pope is being seriously undermined. So he's feeling sick and vulnerable. But while he might be willing to admit to these feelings in private to his close friends and advisers, would he be willing to share them with the general public? I doubt it. I mean, surely, in an age before photography and video recording, the main purpose of a portrait of this kind was, aside from giving a very realistic impression of how you looked, was to give an insight into the positive qualities of your personality and character and a strong allusion to your achievements, your accomplishments, your legacy of which you would be justly proud. The purpose wasn't to give a key to the door of your private cupboard where you hid away all the weak and wobbly bits alongside the skeletons that had been piling up over the years. And in the case of Julius, there were quite a large number of those. So the real mystery of this painting is how on earth did Raphael get away with it? I mean, if the Pope had been known for his humility and modesty, it would have made sense. But that wasn't the nature of this beast, 
no, not at all. I mean, don't be fooled by the feeble looks and the mournful expression. This was a man who was known for his virility, his ruthless ambition, brutal determination, and fearsome temper. This was a man of action, renowned for his military prowess rather than spirituality, who self-styled himself the warrior pope, and took his name not in honour of one of his predecessors, but in emulation of his great hero, Julius Caesar, the great military commander and leader of the Roman Republic. And when he commissioned Michelangelo to make a statue of him in the city of Bologna, he insisted that he should be depicted brandishing a sword, not a book, because he was no man of letters. But he didn't just see the papacy in imperial terms. For him, family dynasty was just as important. His uncle had been Pope, Sixtus IV, so why not he? And indeed, he was very proud of his family connections. The portrait makes that clear. Look closely at the gold finials of the chair. They are in the form of acorns. The acorn is the fruit of the oak tree, and the Pope's family surname was Della Rovere, which means of the oak. So here we have a very clear rebus, which is a visual pun on his surname. His progress to the papacy was facilitated by his appointment as cardinal, and that promotion was by his uncle, Pope Sixtus IV, so nepotism. And it was during his time as cardinal that he fathered at least one illegitimate child, a daughter, Felice. And so one of the many skeletons he brought with him to the papal cupboard, another being the fact that he had at least one mistress, if not more. It was also rumoured he had male lovers, although no evidence to substantiate this claim. In the years leading up to his bid for the papacy, he amassed a substantial fortune through such practices as simony, selling of church offices, and pluralism. The holding at the same time of a number of church positions, from which he derived a substantial income without having to do any work. And when it came to his election as Pope in 1503, he had one of the shortest elections on record, just a couple of hours. That's because he bribed the electorate. And there were only two votes not cast in his favour. And one of them was his own, because he wasn't allowed to vote for himself. On becoming Pope, all his policies were directed to realising his grand imperial vision of restoring Rome to its former glory and consolidating and expanding the papal territory. He was very successful in this respect. During his papacy, the land owned by the Vatican was greatly increased. One notable loss was the city of Bologna, whose sovereignty was lost to the French after defeat in battle in 1510. The Pope fell gravely ill, and during his convalescence, he grew a beard, which he claimed was penitential, a beard he vowed not to shave off until the French had been driven from the Italian peninsula. And when things took a turn for the better, in the spring of 1512, he shaved off the beard. So he only wore a beard for a short period of time, but it was long enough to make it an acceptable practice for popes in particular and Roman Catholic clergy in general to wear beards. Before then, it had been forbidden by canon law for three main reasons. Firstly, because it distinguished the priests in the Western Church from those in the East and from other faiths where beard-wearing was acceptable. Secondly, there were many passages in the Bible which supported the argument that the growing of facial hair was the act of a sinner with multiple transgressions to acknowledge. 
something with which the popes would not wish to be associated, even if their own lives made them prime candidates for adopting such a practice. And then the third reason was largely practical. When officiating in Mass, there was always the risk that the priest might end up with a wine-stained beard. So to avoid that indignity, beards were banned. And you could argue that the Pope has reached a compromise by not growing a moustache as well as a beard. So he doesn't risk the double indignity of a wine-stained tash as well as beard. So ironically, the beard which we would associate with old age was actually a symbol of his military policy, a policy of aggrandizement which was hugely controversial. The Pope had his critics who thought that he was more concerned with material and temple matters than spiritual. And the Pope would have vehemently defended his policy on the grounds that if the church was going to be successful in defeating its greatest enemy, the infidel, in the form of Islam, it had to be strong politically, financially and economically. And the larger the territory over which the papacy had sovereignty and influence, the more successful its policy would be. Then, with rival faiths and critics within the church who undermined its authority defeated, it could focus on its principal purpose, the saving of souls. Together with his policy of aggrandizement came his determination to restore Rome to its former glory. He may not have been a man of letters, but he certainly was a man of great vision, and he shared with many artists the conviction that it was through the visual arts that the revival and renewal of Rome could best be achieved. And so he continued the policy of his notorious predecessor, the controversial bourgeois pope, Alexander VI, of redecorating the papal apartments, building new churches, restoring existing ones, rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica, and furnishing all these wonderful buildings with great works of art. It was a controversial policy, it was very extravagant, and it was funded largely through his military campaigns and the sale of indulgences, prayers said for the salvation of souls. This latter church abuse was hugely criticised by reformers, such as Erasmus, who, when he was spending time in Rome in 1509, wrote a blistering satire on the Pope entitled Julius, Excluded from Paradise. And also Martin Luther, who, when he came to Rome in 1511, famously proclaimed, I would not have missed seeing Rome for a thousand florins, for then I might have been accused of being unjust to the Pope. And again, Julius would have had an answer to his critics that no money spent for the purpose of glorifying God was extravagant. The more lavish the expenditure, the greater God was glorified. And as God's representative on earth, any expenditure which enhanced the reputation and prestige of his office, he accepted as the earthly reflection of God's much greater glory in heaven. In other words, he'd accept any glory on God's behalf. So through this brief analysis of Julius's papacy, we get two very clear images of him. One as the warrior pope, the defender of papal territory, and secondly, as the great patron of the arts. Both which are far removed from this alternative image of him as a weak, feeble, elderly and sick man, which makes Raphael's portrait all the more astonishing and raises the question once again 
How on earth did he get away with it? Well, I've given some consideration to this question and come up with a possible answer. I believe that Raphael convinced the Pope, if he needed any convincing, that the portrait showed him in a very favourable, flattering and positive light. That he persuaded the Pope, if again he needed any persuasion, that his more indirect, subtle, informal, understated, intimate approach was far more effective in conveying ideas of the Pope's status, his command, his authority, and revealing to us his attributes, accomplishments, and legacy than a more direct, predictable, overstated, almost in-your-face sort of approach would have done. I mean, one obvious drawback about presenting the Pope in a very formal way, wearing the full papal regalia, looking rather formidable, frightening and somewhat unapproachable, is that the viewer would come away with a very strong idea of the Pope's office, but virtually nothing of the man who occupied the uniform, which was surely one of the principal objectives of the commission. So Raphael took the risk, often what creating a masterpiece involves, of showing the Pope in a more intimate, informal way, and thereby revealing some of his vulnerabilities and frailties. But he also gave the viewer a way in to discovering the private side of Julius. Now let's review our first impressions of the sitter. Earlier in my commentary, I supplied you with the information that the Pope was advanced in years, suffering serious health conditions, and feeling his position as Pope was being undermined. And I'll give more specific details about the latter a little bit later on. And the main risk of analysing this portrait Using the benefit of this knowledge is that we can jump to certain conclusions about the Pope's thoughts, moods, general feelings, which are not necessarily accurate. So we interpret his expression as being careworn, reflecting the stress and pressures of the job. And we see his eyes as being melancholic as he sorrowfully reflects on his mortality and frail condition. But if we didn't have that prior knowledge, we might come to very different conclusions about the Pope's personality and his thoughts. We might interpret the Pope's pensive state as reflecting a man of noble mind, intelligent, thoughtful. And, as leader of the Roman Catholic Church, we would expect to find the Pope at times in a state of deep meditation, no doubt reflecting on matters of a spiritual and theological nature. Now, it's interesting that one man who knew the Pope very well, his master of ceremonies, Paris de Gracis, was known to have remarked that the Pope had very little sense of humour, and he was generally absorbed in deep and silent thought. So Raphael is actually showing the Pope in a mood that he was known regularly to adopt. So this alternative reading of the portrait conveys more to us a notion of the Pope's intelligence and thoughtfulness rather than his sorrow and pain. And even if in reality his thoughts are no more profound than wondering what's for dinner, or to use the words of my late beloved father, he's just pretending to think, it doesn't matter. It's the impression that counts. And sometimes it's the little details that matter most of all. Let's take another look at the Pope's face. How would you best describe his expression? Would you say the Pope looks thoughtful, possibly? Or sorrowful? Or maybe a combination of the two? 
How about resolute and determined? Now, I can see that that might not immediately spring to mind, but that's because we've been focusing our attention on the eyes at the expense of the mouth. That's where we now need to look, and it's where Raphael reveals his genius to us. Few artists possessed his ability to show what lies beneath exterior surfaces or structures. In this case, the closed lips. Look closely at those lips, and you'll see, it's only a tiny detail but hugely significant, that the muscles are tense around the lips. And this tells us that were the lips to be parted, we'd see that the teeth are gritted tightly together and the jaw is clenched. So the Pope is grimacing, his mood one of defiance and resolution. And we can even read a hint of anger in those melancholic eyes. But this resolution isn't confined to the mouth. It's carried through to the left hand. One lesson that Raphael learned from the great master Leonardo da Vinci was that expression, character, wasn't just conveyed through the face, but through the whole of the body, through its posture, through its gestures. And in this case, it's the hands that do most of the talking. Each hand is held in a distinctive pose, which reflect different aspects of the Pope's personality. And this manifested itself in the objectives he pursued and his accomplishments and achievements. Let's look at the right hand first of all. Now, our vision is drawn to the hand very subtly and cleverly by Raphael through the vertical line, which starts above the Pope's head, where the green silk damask curtains meet. And it continues down to where the two sections of the cape meet at the front, made more distinct for us by the white ermine lining. And the line continues down to the hand. The posture is restful and relaxed, the grip firm enough to hold the mapper, but not unduly firm so as to show off protruding veins or muscles. Rather, we focus our attention on the rings with the inlaid jewels which adorn his hand. This is the sensitive, cultural side of the Pope. He may have been no man of letters, but he was a man of vision and a great connoisseur of the arts. And he understood the important part that the visual arts could play in restoring both the papacy and Rome, the eternal city, to its former glory. So this is the man who commissioned Bramante to design the Belvedere and begin the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. He commissioned Michelangelo to design the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, showing the Last Judgment, and Raphael to produce frescoes for the papal apartments, which resulted in one of the greatest works of the Renaissance, the School of Athens. So through this sensitive, bejeweled right hand, we are presented with the Pope as the greatest patron of the Renaissance and one of the greatest patrons of all time. And then we turn to the left hand. What a contrast. This hand, dramatically foreshortened so the knuckles break into our space, grips the arm of the chair as though the Pope's life depended upon it. It's a continuation of the gritted teeth and the clenched jaw. This is the contrasting side of the Pope's character and personality. The man of action, known for his ruthless ambition, the self-styled warrior Pope, who pursued an aggressive policy of aggrandizement, who would lead his troops into battle with the famous cry, drive out the barbarians, and left to his successors an enlarged papal state and a renewed, confident and powerful papacy.
It's as though through the portrait he's proclaiming, I may be physically feeble, but I'm not finished yet. I may be downhearted and dejected, but I'm defiant and I'm not defeated. Write me off at your peril. And the portrait is somewhat prophetic because the Pope proved through his actions the validity of his statement. For in the autumn of 1511, he suffered a serious threat to his position and authority as Pope. A group of distant cardinals, supported by the French king, Louis XII, and the Emperor Maximilian, summoned an unauthorized council which met at Pisa, which denounced the Pope and threatened him with deposition. He retaliated by summoning the Fifth Lateran Council in the spring of 1512, and though he was too ill to attend many of the sessions, he managed to secure the agreement of both the French king and the Emperor Maximilian to repudiate the unauthorized council and its decrees and to formally adhere to the Fifth Lateran Council. It was one of Julius's great triumphs because by that determined action, he re-established his position as Pope. And even in the final month of his life, he remained active. Seeing through legislation, which made simony, the selling of church offices, unlawful, a practice which he had widely used himself, but was nonetheless very keen to stamp out. And Raphael has perfectly captured for us in this portrait the image of a man who, though made feeble by ill health and age, mentally is as strong as ever, retaining his focus, purpose, determination and resolution till the very end. And I think the Pope recognised these great qualities in the painting, the combination of outward frailty with inner strength and resolution, and ceremony and dignity with intimacy and informality. He recognised that Raphael's approach encouraged the viewer to empathise with his character and admire his achievements and accomplishments. So I believe the Pope was very satisfied with the result. But there is another theory and that is that the Pope had no objections to be shown in a somewhat vulnerable light because he never intended the work to be seen by the general public. Rather, it was commissioned as a votive portrait, which would be placed in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo after his death, and in front of which prayers would be said for the salvation of his soul. But as we've seen, this didn't happen. The public were invited to view the painting, when it was put on display in the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo in September 1512 for eight days to celebrate the feast of the Virgin Mary. And it became so influential, it was adopted as the standard template for portraits of popes, notably by Titian, Diego, Velasquez, and even in the 20th century, Francis Bacon in 1953 did his own controversial take on Velasquez, Pope Innocent X. And then this raises the question, if the Pope did not intend the painting to be seen by the public, why were his wishes not respected? And I come back to the conclusion that whether the Pope intended it to be seen by the few or the many, he was greatly satisfied with the portrait that Raphael had produced of him. Had he not been so, he would almost certainly have rejected it. I mean, this was a man who wasn't bothered about hurting people's feelings. When Raphael was given the commission to redecorate the papal apartments, he was one of a number of artists assigned to this task. But when the Pope became aware of his superior talent, he dismissed 
all the other artists and gave Raphael the authority to paint over the work they'd already completed. To call that ruthless would be an understatement. So this was a man who, had he rejected Raphael's work, would have lost no sleep over his decision. So my conclusion is that the Pope was greatly satisfied with the portrait, and it's not difficult to see why. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's the perfect portrait, all the right ingredients in just the right proportion. And we've looked at two of those ingredients so far, the way in which Raphael captures a very honest but realistic likeness of the man and gives us an insight into his personality, his character, his attributes and achievements in a very subtle and understated way. And what I would like to do in the remaining minutes of this podcast is to look at other features of the portrait which make it such an outstanding work of art. One great delight of the painting is the way in which Raphael exquisitely renders the different textures and materials of the Pope's clothing. We can almost feel between our fingers the softness of the pleated cassock and contrast that with the silk satin sheen of the sleeves, closely fitting at the wrists, courtesy of those exquisite white buttons. We can luxuriate in the sumptuous material of the red velvet cape, beautifully lined with expensive ermine, which, though a similar shade to his beard and eyebrows, is clearly visibly much, much softer to the touch. And look at those mischievous, crafty details, such as where a wayward strand of ermine has got caught between the button and the buttonhole of his cape. And as a contrast to the softness and satin and sheen effects of the clothing, he captures the crispness of those jewels set in the rings adorning his fingers. And look at the superlative modelling of the Pope's face and body. We get the real 3D effect and a revelation of the structure that supports the outer skin. Particularly striking is where Raphael has defined the planes of the Pope's forehead where they meet at the temples as we get this transition from light to shadow. It's utterly divine. But the pièce de résistance has to be the reflection caught in the polished gold finials of the high-backed chair. Not only do we see a reflection of the Pope's red cap, but also that of a partitioned or mullioned window. And this detail has enabled historians to locate the room in the papal apartments where the Pope is likely to have sat for this portrait. With this attention to detail and striving for realism, Raphael reflects the influence of the Northern Renaissance artists such as Jan van Eyck and Roger van der Leyden. He had a more painterly, less graphic style with the emphasis on colour and brushwork. But what was so magical about Raphael's art is that unlike other artists who had a similar painterly style and had to often sacrifice details in order to achieve the colourful effects they desired, you never get any sense of compromise in Raphael's work. So you get a combination of beautiful colour harmonies, elegant brushwork and exquisite detail. And what's more, Raphael gets the balance just right. No colour overwhelms. None of his brushwork is too strident. No detail is superfluous. None is lacking. It's all just perfect, as is the presentation and composition of the piece. Although Raphael presents the Pope three-quarter length at an oblique angle, we feel he's really 
in the centre of the painting. And this is done through clever tricks like placing the head between the finials and centering the right hand through that vertical line described by where the curtains and the front sections of his cape meet. And then the image of the Pope is beautifully supported by this wonderful colour harmony of red, green and white. And note how the colours correspond to the jewels set in the rings on the Pope's right hand, red, white and green. Now, these are the colour of the theological virtues. Red is for charity, white is for faith and green is for hope. The use of red and green is particularly effective because they're complementary colours. When shown alongside each other, they increase each other's vibrancy. Now, it's interesting that originally Raphael had planned to have a blue background and on it place gold images of the papal symbols, the cross keys of St. Peter and the papal tiara. Had he gone ahead with that scheme, it would have made the painting far too busy and served as a distraction from our main focus on the Pope. But thankfully, Raphael changed his mind and replaced the blue and gold with the present plain green background. It's thought that Raphael may have got the idea of using a green background from the portrait by Justice of Ghent of Julius's uncle, Pope Sixtus IV, which has as its background a green damask curtain. Raphael would have almost certainly seen this portrait because it hung in the ducal palace of his hometown of Obino, where his father had been court painter. Now, over the years, those gold images of the papal symbols have come to the surface. If you look closely, you can make out the outline of the cross keys of St. Peter. These artistic variations, known as pentimenti, could be seen even more clearly when the painting was technically examined in 1969. At that time, it was thought that the National Gallery had one of a number of copies of the original painting. But the evidence of these pentimenti enabled them to conclude that they in fact had the original version, for the obvious reason that a copy won't have alterations. The artist responsible simply produces an identical version of the final work. In more recent times, they have also been able to give a more accurate dating for the portrait. An ambassador from Mantua on the 16th of August, 1511, recorded that Raphael had painted a portrait of the Pope wearing a beard in one of the papal apartments in the Vatican. And this is normally considered to be the fresco in the Stanza del Signatura, which shows Pope Julius II in the guise of Pope Gregory IX, who was Pope from 1227 to 41. There, he's shown in full papal regalia, but the face is almost identical to that of the easel portrait. And it's thought that Raphael produced the National Gallery version first of all and used that as a model for the fresco. So this was date the National Gallery's painting to around June, July 1511. Now this work, together with so many of Raphael's paintings, have a naturalness, spontaneity, effortlessness about them, which disguise the hours of preparation that went into their production. And this feature of his working practice was made very clear at the special superlative exhibition on Raphael held recently at the National Gallery. It presented for the first time the whole of Raphael's life and career. So we see him not just as a painter, but as a designer, an architect, an archaeologist, an entrepreneur, 
a museum curator before the post had even been invented. And one of the great revelations for me was where they put alongside a finished work a number of preparatory drawings, giving you an idea of just what hard work went into every single piece. And it also reveals what a brilliant draftsman Raphael was. And I think this is possibly the secret behind his successful combination of a painterly style with a huge attention to detail. Now, so many of Raphael's work have a naturalness, a spontaneity about them, an apparent effortlessness. And this, combined with his incredible virtuosity, make his works the pictorial equivalent of Castiglione's Perfect Gentleman, as described in his hugely influential book, Il Cortegiano, or The Book of the Courtier, published in 1528. Indeed, Raphael was himself the quintessential perfect gentleman. Graceful, charming, good-mannered, eager to please, highly accomplished in intellectual, artistic and physical pursuits. And one of his most exquisite male portraits is of Castiglione, who is a great friend of his. And Raphael portrays him in the image of the perfect courtier, with a warm and kindly expression, soberly and elegantly dressed, and in a relaxed and easy pose. Now, Raphael's personality and social skills helped contribute to his great success as an artist. If we look at his profession from a purely business point of view, his ability to communicate well, to negotiate deals, to plan, prepare and execute projects, to delegate work, to able assistance, all this enabled him to undertake and successfully complete a large number of commissions. But these personal qualities, which served him very well in his professional life, made his private life, by contrast, somewhat chaotic. With his stunning good looks, his wit, his charm, his intelligence and huge ability, he had ladies constantly knocking on his door, offering them his services. And being the charming man that he was, he didn't want to offend them by turning them down. And his desire never to offend was well illustrated by the story of Cardinal Bibbiano, who offered Raphael the hand in marriage of his niece, Mariah. Now, Raphael didn't want to marry the lady, but he didn't want to offend her uncle, so he reluctantly agreed to the wedding. However, he kept on putting off the wedding date until the poor lady eventually died. And so that left Raphael free to continue his very passionate and active love life. And according to Fasari, it was the reason for his tragic demise. For in Lives of the Great Artists, Vasari tells us that Raphael died of a high fever brought on by an excessive bout of lovemaking. Now, there's no evidence to substantiate Vasari's rather romantic theory on how Raphael died. It's generally concluded that he died of a severe fever. What is known is that he died on his birthday at the tragically young age of 37. When I left the National Gallery, having visited the special exhibition on Raphael, on the one hand, I was uplifted, excited and exhilarated by what I'd experienced. It exceeded my wildest expectations in showing the range, the depth, the versatility and the utter brilliance of Raphael's work. But then, as I feared, those feelings of exhilaration and excitement gave way to a mood of depression and sorrow. And that's because I was grieving the lost works, contemplating 
the possibly hundreds of masterpieces that the public has been deprived of simply because Raphael died so tragically young. But then, as I boarded the train back to Truro, my mood changed again. I decided to view things in a different way. Instead of grieving for the works he never produced, I promised to appreciate and treasure even more the works that survive, and in particular this magnificent portrait of Pope Julius II that was so influential that not only did artists such as Velasquez and Titian produce their own papal versions of it, but Rembrandt also, in his portrait of the 79-year-old Margarita de Geer, was inspired by it too. It's in the National Gallery, so you can look it up on the website. There sits the lady, looking directly at the viewer, very dignified, in her voluminous stiff ruff and her elegant black dress. But look at the hands. The right hand holds a white cloth, the left grips the armrest of the chair. The same gestures found in the portrait of Pope Julius II. It can't be just a coincidence. So the Louvre can keep its Mona Lisa with her enigmatic smile and eyes that follow you around the room. Give me any day the teeth gritting, jaw clenching, hand grasping, jewel glittering portrait of Pope Julius II, brilliantly brought to life by the genius known as Raphael. <laughs>